Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. You know, as a church, the most vital thing we can offer you is honestly ourselves. In relationship with God, in relationship with you. It's important that we gather on Sunday morning. It's vital that we come together. It's vital that we worship. It's vital we know God. But if you are not known, I will promise you, you will not know God. There's a lot of theologians that have taught, and it's something that we miss in this day. To the degree you know yourself, to the degree you'll know God. And to the degree you know God, you start to learn more about yourself. And just as Stephen mentioned, you know, how many of us feel like orphans? How many have gone through life and felt rejected? And see, it's not until you experience that depth of rejection and realize, yeah, I really need the love of God. I need to know that I'm adopted. I need to know that he will never leave me or forsake me because the truth is I've been forsaken. I know what it's like to be left. I know what it's like to be in a room and to be the one that's not chosen or at least to feel that way, even though everyone may accept you, you may internally have that feeling of weakness or insecurity But when you invite God into the midst of it, you find out that he is your father. And what you knew intellectually is now known emotionally and experientially, and it changes us. And see, that really happens in community as we love each other, care for each other, walk with Jesus together. So whether it's in Julie's groups or it's in growth groups or men's discipleship groups, guys, we just want to encourage you to plug into community and have the courage to be known. Have the courage to be. That's my little commercial. I'm done. Hey, if you want to grab a Bible, we're in the book of Nehemiah. I want to confess this morning as I study this week, it's kind of a challenging passage to get your arms around. And so I feel like I'm in this place where I know too much, but I'm probably going to communicate too little. Just trying to understand, get my arms around the the depths of this passage. We're in Nehemiah chapter 10, because see, in the story of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is in this place where he sees something in the world that he has to address. And you can imagine he's angry, he's frustrated, he sees something that's broken, but instead of just going out into the world like we normally do and just reacting, responding with anger, rage, blaming others, Nehemiah takes that burden to God and says, God, listen, I hate what I'm seeing right now. I look at the city of Jerusalem, the city where your presence dwells. The city's in ruin. Nobody's following you, loving you, obeying you. I gotta do something about this, but before I can do something about this, you gotta do something about me. Because see, that change I want to see in others needs to be a change I'm willing to see in myself. And before I go address the speck in your eye, God, I got a big old plank in my eye. And I need you to do something in me. That's what he does. For four months, he prays. He fasts. And then eventually this moment, this holy initiative comes up, and he has an opportunity to speak to the most powerful man at that time on the earth, which was the king of Persia, and says, listen, here's my dream. Here's my vision. You ever been there? holding out a dream to someone that could crush it, that moment of faith, how are they going to respond? Well, God in his grace had grace over Nehemiah, and he moved through the heart of the king, and Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem, and we find out there's oppression that comes from the outside, and then there's all this hypocrisy within the nation of Israel. So he's not just building walls. He's defending people. He's addressing sin, and in chapter 9, the people repent. They're reminded of the faithfulness of God, and then when we get to chapter 10... What happens in chapter 10 is they've just gone through this experience of revival. 
they rediscovered the power of God's word. And in rediscovering God's word, they rediscovered who they are. They humbled themselves. They responded in repentance and faith to God. And now in chapter 10, they're saying, what we just experienced, how can we keep that going? And what we look at in chapter 10 is the kind of culture that God can work in. That there are things that should happen in the church that shouldn't really happen anywhere else. Because of the culture and the environment that we create here. And before I read this passage, I want to show you a picture. Bella, can you pull up that picture of some grass in the church? Some of you know that I walk to church a lot. I have the privilege of living a mile away from the church, so my commute is through Bergen Park. It's horrible. Sometimes there's elk in the way, occasional deer, maybe a hawk flies by, blue skies. Yeah, it's gorgeous. It's absolutely amazing. And so I walk to church just about every single day. And I think it was about two weeks ago, I was walking up to the church and I noticed this area of just bright green grass. And around the grass, everything else was dead. And in some ways, that's a, a picture, a metaphor for this passage that what we water is what's gonna grow. What we cultivate is gonna grow. And there's a certain environment where God's presence and power can show up, but we have to be humble enough to submit ourselves to God and say, God, I'm gonna submit myself. That's why his word is there, to put us in that position to receive. And God, I want you to work through me and in me so that I'm not, I'm not dead, but instead you're working in me and your spirit's working through me. So that's what we're gonna read in chapter 10. You guys got the picture? So we're gonna actually start in chapter nine, verse 38, and then read all the way through chapter 10, but I'm gonna skip the names, if that's okay, because I cannot pronounce them, and it would be, it'd be ridiculous. So let's, let's jump into it. We're gonna start in chapter nine, verse 38. And again, the people are responding to the faithfulness of God, and they're saying, God, we want this culture of revival to continue among us. So here's what we're gonna do. Verse 38. The word of the Lord. And because of all this, we will make a firm covenant in writing. On the seal of the document are the names of our priests, Levites, and our, our princes, our Levites and our priests. Chapter 10. And on the seals are the names of Nehemiah and a whole bunch of people. Verse 28. Jump down to verse 28. And so all of these people are signing this document, covenanting together. Verse 28, and the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all the people who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, with the nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and statutes. We will not give, here's our commitment, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of this land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of this land bring goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year in the exaction of every debt. Verse 32. And we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, 
the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it to the house of our God according to the Father's house, to our Father's house at times appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of our Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree, year by year, to the house of our Lord. Also bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law. The firstborn of our herds and our flocks, to bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the first fruits of every tree, the wine, the oil, uh, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from the ground, for it is the Levites who collect all the tithes in all the towns where we labor. And the priests, the sons of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tithes of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people, for the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain and wine and oil to the chambers, where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, uh, and the gatekeepers and the singers, and we will not neglect the house of our God. Let me finish with chapter 11, verse 1, 1 and 2. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained outside in other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Father, we recognize that... um, You've not given us a spirit of fear. You've given us the spirit of Christ that dwells in us. And you want to say over us that belong to you, we are the children of God. We've been adopted out of chaos, out of brokenness, out of loneliness, shame, guilt, fear. We're adopted into your family where we experience the love that Jesus had with the fathers, the love that you now shine on us. And so as we come to your word, we want to submit And Father, whatever we bring, whatever challenges or or concerns, we just surrender them to and say, Father, would you teach us so that we'd be the kind of community culture where you can grow, where you can bring about growth. And so meet us here, Father, we'd ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the question. What kind of culture are we producing in the church? And then what kind of culture is growing in your own heart? And when I think of culture, what we're talking about is the elements that are necessary for growth. As you go about your week, there are certain things that are influencing you. All of those influences result in where you are today, whether it's listening to news, the relationships you have, whatever you bring in is kind of coming into the soil of your heart, and it's producing the attitudes, the behaviors, the actions where you are right now. And just as there is a culture in your heart, every one of you brings that culture into the church. And though we see ourselves as individuals, Scripture says we are one body. Meaning that all of those cultures come in together, and the question is, are we going to surrender what we want and what we think we need to what God wants and what he says we need? And are we willing to be the kind of people that says to God, listen, use me, I am your servant, 
here's what I want, God. Here's what I'm after. Here's what I'm pursuing. But I want to surrender myself to you so your presence and power can work through me. See, that's what's happening in chapter 10. Now, the language is a little difficult to work through. As you could tell, I was struggling a little bit even to read through some of it. But what it's describing is a culture of holiness and revival that shows up in three ways. The first place it shows up is in your relationships. And especially in the relationships that are closest to you. The closer the relationship, I think you know this, the greater the impact in your life. And the first place the people are gotta commit is say, God, we're gonna do relationships the way you say we're gonna do relationships. And so the question is, church, are we gonna commit to that? Are we gonna do relationships the way that God says we're supposed to do relationships? And if you say yes, do you realize what God says about how we do relationships? To do relationships the way that God says we do relationships means I gotta submit to him, I gotta rest in him, I gotta trust him, I gotta let him empower me. First thing is relationships. The second aspect is rhythms. Are we gonna do the rhythms of life the way that God says? And if you wanna put up that outline, is that up there? Oh, there it is. Look at that. Great job, Bella. Are we gonna do the rhythms of life the way that God says we should do rhythms? And then finally, are we going to have this holy reverence? See the three R's? That's how we're doing it today. Relationships, rhythms, and reverence. This is the culture, the kind of community that God can work through. So let's jump back into it, and we're going to see how this works, works out. First thing we see is in verse 30. And it says, We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Now, again, the idea is the depth of relationship, the closer the relationship, the greater the influence. And realize the place where the nation of Israel is at this time is very precarious. They've just rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, and all the nations around them are kind of afraid because Jerusalem, Israel, they're getting stronger. And as they get stronger, those other tribes get weaker. And so what you did is you would marry your daughter to somebody of another tribe to build an alliance so that your nation and your people would be stronger. And so God's saying to the nation of Israel, I don't want you to intermarry among the peoples and the other nations around you. Now, why? Is it because they're not good enough? They're not pretty enough? They're not nice enough? No, they don't worship me. And see, if you get into a relationship with them, what's gonna happen is they're gonna draw you away from me. And see, I'm really jealous for you. I love you. And I want your heart to be devoted to me. And so I want the people around you in your community to be devoted to me. And so do not give your daughters and your sons to marry in the nations around you because what's gonna happen is you're gonna get drawn away. And that's exactly what happens. If you read the story of the Old Testament, it's the nation of Israel constantly being drawn away. And the reason, see, that Israel was in exile, if you know the story of Nehemiah, as you follow on this, they were taken into exile because they wouldn't obey God's law. And instead, they would just marry whoever they wanted to marry. God, I don't care what you say. I don't care that marrying the people of the nations of the earth is going to bring death. I don't care. It's what I want. And you know what God says? He said, well, okay. He hands us over to the desires of our heart. And what happens is that natural result of destruction comes into our life, and our heart gets taken away from God. You know, and sometimes when I'm in relationship with people in our church, and we'll have conversations, and they'll talk about where they are in their faith. And they'll say, you know, I feel really dry in my faith. I don't feel like I have the vitality I once have. I read scripture, it just doesn't mean the same thing. And I'll say, okay, well, let's start talking about the environment that you've created in your life. Hey, let's talk about your community. Who you're sharing your sins with. 
Well, I don't have people in my life I share my sins with. My life's private. Well, okay. Uh, well, who are you walking with? Who knows about what's going on in your life? Who are you carrying life? Who are you doing life with? Well, no one. Well, of course you're going to feel dry. If you don't have that kind of environment around you of people that are pursuing Christ and you're trying to do it on your own, you're not designed to do it that way. And God's saying to the nation of Israel, you're not designed to give your heart to other people who are not following me because they're going to lead you astray. And I want your heart. I want your heart. And see, this is what God has told the nation of Israel throughout their history. Deuteronomy chapter 7. If you jump in Deuteronomy chapter 7, this is a command he gave to the nation of Israel when he brought them out of Egypt. Watch what he says. Verse 1, when the Lord your God brings you up into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away the many nations before you, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jezebites, the seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. Do not allow their influences to come in your midst. Instead, you shall make no covenant with them and show them no mercy. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they will turn you away from your sons. They will turn away your sons from following me and serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will destroy you quickly. Verse five. And thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash their pieces, their pillars, chop down their, ash, their ashrams and burn down their carved images with fire. Verse six, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than the other nations, the other people, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of the peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and, keeps, and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He's saying to the nation of Israel, I want your heart. I want your heart. And if you give your sons and their daughters to nations, to the people around you, they're gonna draw, your heart's gonna be drawn away. And the question for us is, what's drawing away our, our heart? What is it that's stealing our heart away from God and his pursuit of us? And in some ways, it's allowing foreign gods to come in. And they could be good things like work, relationships that matter to us, our kids. But what happens is we elevate them above God. And in elevating them above God, we start worshiping them and pursuing them. And over time, our pursuit isn't towards the Lord. Instead, it's towards those things in our life that the Lord has given us to show us his generosity, but instead of showing us his generosity, they become an object that we pursue itself. What's drawing us away from him? And see, this, this idea is not just in the Old Testament, it's also in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul describes this relationship between us and the world this way. He says, do not become partakers with those who reject God. How can you make a partnership out of right and wrong? That's not a partnership, that's war. Is light best friends with darkness? Does Christ go strolling with the devil? Do trust and mistrust hold hands? Who would think of setting up pagan idols in God's holy temple? But that's exactly what we are. Each of us is a temple in whom God and God lives. And God put it this way himself. 
He said, I will live in them and move in them. I will be their God and they will be my people. So leave the corruption and compromise. Leave it for good, God says. Don't link up with those who pursue, who, who will pollute you. I want you to be all for myself. I will be a father to you. You will be sons and daughters to me. The word of the master God. And then chapter seven, verse one. With promises like this, to put us on, dear friends, let us make a clean break with everything that defiles or distracts us, both within and without, and let us give our entire lives fit and holy temples for the worship of God. Do not allow the worldliness, the desires of the flesh, the lust of the eyes to pollute our hearts and our passion for God. There are things in our own culture that when they seep in, they're gonna steal our heart away from the Lord. And the question just becomes, what culture are we creating? When it comes to our relationships, when it comes to the way we relate to the people around us, when it comes to relationships at work or at home. You know, Jesus spent a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount talking about how we do relationship. And have you ever noticed that the way that Jesus describes how we do relationships, it's really contrary to the way that the world would approach it? It's not natural to us to love our enemies to do good to those who persecute us. I mean, if someone does something bad to me, the most natural thing within me is to do something to them, to seek vengeance. But in the kingdom of God, to get our heart right with him, we have to surrender ourselves to him. And some of the ways that God leads us to surrender ourselves to him is to obey him, meaning, God, if I'm gonna really love people like this, I need to experience your love. God, if I'm gonna forgive people who've hurt me the way that they've hurt me, I gotta experience your forgiveness. The only way I can live the Christian life is I gotta live this life through your power and presence. And he's saying that's the idea. Are we doing relationships the way that God designed us to do relationships? And it's okay to struggle with that. You know, the sexuality of the world is not the sexuality of the kingdom of God. And you live in a culture which describes sexuality in a certain way with a certain narrative. And as you come to the church, if you struggle with the biblical picture of sexuality, it's okay to struggle with that. But the question is, are you willing to walk with Christ in that struggle? And to allow the Lord to lead you and to guide you and to teach you and to get around people who understand who God is and can lead you in a way that, that reveals his will for our lives. Are you willing to walk with him? When you come into my office, if you're struggling with something, first question I'm gonna ask you is, are you willing to submit that to God? Because I don't have any good advice. You come to my office, I don't have good advice. All I can do is connect you to the God that loves you. And I will ask you, are you willing to surrender that to God? Because if you are, hey, let's walk together in this. But if you're not, there's not much I can do unless you have a heart that's willing to say, God, would you lead me and guide me? First thing that they do is they have relationships that reflect God's value and God's kingdom. And then the second thing is they have holy rhythms, rhythms that reflect God's passion and desire and desire for them. Watch this as you jump back into Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 31. And it says, and if the peoples of the land bring their goods and any grain on the Sabbath to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the extraction of every debt. See, just as only marrying within the nation of Israel in some ways was a detriment to the nation because they weren't able to form alliances, Working only six days a week forced them to trust God because all the nations around them were working seven days a week. And if you know anything about the story of the nation of Israel at this point in their history, financially, they are in ruins. A famine has just come through the land. They're being taxed by the, by the king of Persia. 
And it would be really beneficial, one, to marry the nations around them and to build partnerships and build wealth. And then second is simply to work seven days a week. And God says, I want you to live in a way that when people look at you, they can see that you trust me. And historically, the way that Christianity has moved out and made it the greatest impact in the cultures of the world is in three areas. The way we view sex, the way we view money, and the way we view power. And all three combining, doing those things in a way that reflects the kingdom of God has brought light and truth to say these are people who live differently. And when it comes to money, money can't be the only goal. And so he says to the nation, I want you to live in a way that shows everyone around you that when it comes to the provisions that you have, everyone can tell that you trust in me. And one of the ways to do that is once every single week, I want you to rest. But here's the cool thing about rest. The idea was when you rested from your work, everyone who worked for you got to rest. And your donkey got to rest. And your cows got to rest. And your horse got to rest. And then your land got to rest. And then he said, every seven years, I don't want you to grow a blessed thing. It's called the year of Jubilee. Could you imagine not working for a year? Now, if you knew that seventh year was coming, it was every seven years, you would save up, right? You would live differently. You'd be preparing. We got the year of Jubilee coming up. And not only are you not going to work, you know the guy that owes you money? You know him? Hadn't paid you back? You're going to forgive him. What? So I've got to rest every seven days, which means I'm not making money. And then every seven years, I've got to forgive every debt. Why? Church, why? Because that's the generosity of your God. Could you imagine a culture like that today? Every seven years, all the debts were forgiven. People go, what, what, are, you, what are you people about? And, and a business owner that practice, practices Sabbath in his own business, what would that look like? He would realize that his employees... They're not utilities, they're people, and they need rest. And so in my workload, I'm gonna build rest in the schedule for my people, even if they don't believe me, even if they don't trust in me. Because see, these people, the nation of Israel, as they were resting, all the people that worked for them were resting, they were benefiting from the work they had done. You know, there was a church I heard about this week, I was listening to a podcast, and this church was wrestling with ways they could really show the love and the presence of God in their community. One of the things they did, I thought this was absolutely amazing, they raised $1.5 million, not to pay down debt, not their debt, but to pay down the medical bills of people in their community. And here's what was amazing. They didn't just pay down the medical bills of people in their community that voted the way they voted and did the stuff the way they did it, they paid down the bills for anybody who came into their church and met those qualifications. They paid down those bills. And one of the person that came to their church was someone in their community who is pretty adamantly fighting against their church, criticizing them, condemning them for what they believe, and they paid her debts. And many people in the church didn't like that. It's like, hey, we want to be generous, Right? But we don't want to be generous to those people because they don't deserve it. 
But in the economy of God, does his generous generosity flow naturally to the deserving or does it flow naturally to everyone? God in his generosity, he allows the sun to shine on the evil and the good and the righteous and the unrighteous. He lets the rain, he doesn't let the rain just fall in the righteous fields. He lets the rain fall everywhere. And so he's saying to the nation of Israel, I want you to live in a way, work in a way, do money in a way that causes people to say, you worship a different God. Because church, if we at Bergen Park don't do money differently than the average person in the United States, we're not following Christ. And nothing will show you the direction and the course of what you worship and value more than your money. You see, this isn't a new command. This is something God's, he's told the nation of Israel, he's told us for generations. Watch this, Deuteronomy chapter five, verse 12. He said, observe the Sabbath day. Deuteronomy 5, 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. And on the seventh day you shall rest to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work. Your sons, your daughters, your male servants, your female servants, your ox, your donkey, your livestock, the sojourner, the guys that's hanging out with you, who's within your gates, your male servants, your female servants may rest as well. So as you're resting and worshiping God, that's gonna create a culture of impact that's gonna flow out of you and you're gonna bring rest to everyone else. Verse 15, and you shall remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. Here's why you're gonna rest. Here's why you're gonna be generous to others. That the Lord your God brought you out from there with his mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. I didn't rescue because you were pretty or strong or mighty. I rescued you because you were humble and you cried out to me. And even says, hey, I didn't pick you because you were the mightiest nation. Actually, I picked you because you were the smallest and the weakest, and you were the one in whom my presence and power could show up so the world would know who I am. What the nation of Israel did is they created rhythms in their relationships, rhythms in their work, rhythms in their money, so that they had a holy reverence for God. You know, the word culture has within it the word cult. And a cult is centered on something. The idea of a cult is that you're centered on something to the extent that it's a little extreme. And every culture is centered on something. And if you could survey, what is the culture of Evergreen centered on? And if you just reflected on it, maybe you wrote that down this week. What is the culture of Evergreen centered on? And then to ask the question, am I any different? And should Christ make a difference? and what my heart is centered on and how I do sex and relationships and money and rest and work, how is the kingdom of God showing up in my life? Because he rescued me by his grace. And if his grace is that great and that amazing and his love is that powerful, it should make a difference in the way that I relate to the world. Because see, the last thing they cultivated was not only great relationships and great rhythms, but a holy reverence. And so I'm not gonna read it all again, but in verses 32 through 39, if you go back and you look at that, what I want you to notice is how many times the house of our God is mentioned. And you see it over and over. And what it's describing is renewing all the traditions that they had in the past. Hey, we're gonna get back and we're gonna start celebrating again the holy months, the holy days, the holy rituals. The nation of Israel had forgotten those things and they're bringing their heart back and centering their worship on God. And at the center of everything, at the center of their cult was the presence of God. 
It was the house of God. So you see it in verse 32, the house of our God. Verse 33, the house of our God. Verse 34, the house of our God. Verse 35, the house of our Lord, the house of our God. I think it's actually three times. Verse 37, the house of our God. Verse 38, the house of our God. And then notice how it ends in verse 39. And here's the key. We will not neglect the house of our God. Now, today, the house of our God is not something that has a physical location so much it has a spiritual dwelling. You see, we are the house of our God. In the Old Testament, God dwelt in a physical location. But see, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, God now dwells in us. And so we are the temple of God individually, but also corporately. And the question becomes, what is our culture in this church centered on? As a community of faith, what does it look like for us to follow Jesus together? And are we committed to that? Are we committed to following Jesus and saying, listen, this is our God, this is our Lord, so I want to surrender to him, I want to submit to him. God, I want to do things your way. You are my Lord and my God, and so teach me and guide me. And then are we willing to get in the scriptures in a way that says, God, I know I need to submit to you and surrender to you. I'm struggling with that, so I need community around me that I can share those struggles with. And then, God, as I go out into the world in this community, you're going to get a lot of voices, even from the church, that are saying, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And sometimes you need to go, is that what it looks like to follow Jesus? Because even as pastors and Christian leaders, we get it wrong. And you need to go back to Scripture and say, God, what does it look like to reflect your kingdom in my relationships, in my money, in my work? And so if you're frustrated in your faith, maybe one of the questions you just need to ask is, God, what am I not surrendering to you? Because often God, when he wants to do a new work in your life, he's going to remind you of something that you don't want to address. Have you experienced that before? Hey, God, here's something really important I want you to take care of. Would you do something about that? And then God's kind of silent. And you keep knocking, God, would you do something about this? There's something in my life I want you to change. And often through the power of the Spirit, the power of his word, or someone in your life said, God said, Jason, you remember that thing I've been talking to you about? Hey, until you're willing to surrender to me, I'm not here to be your advisor. I'm here to be your Lord. And if I'm gonna save you, I need all of you. And so as a church, are we willing to create that kind of holy community where our hearts are surrendered to him? Because when you get to the New Testament, here's something you see, and this is something I wrestled with this week and trying to figure out how to communicate it, but when Jesus went from town to town, some places he went to, miracles off the chain, right? Crazy. Someone would touch his garment and they're healed. It's like power went out from Jesus, the presence of God went out from Jesus, and then Jesus would go to other towns and he was shocked. Do you know why he was shocked? Because he couldn't do anything there. We're talking about the son of God. He would go to a town and he'd say, I can't do anything here because the culture of that faith community is dead. And if we don't have the right culture that's trusting in God, leaning on God, pursuing God, what we're doing is limiting God's presence and power working through us. And see, sometimes I wonder, God, what is, what is it in my life that's keeping you from showing up and working through me? And as we celebrate communion this morning, that's kind of the question I want to bring to him. God, in my life and in my rhythms and my relationships, what is it I'm not willing to surrender and submit to you? And then as we receive communion, what we're doing is celebrating the sacrifice of Jesus, that God doesn't accept us because we've got it all together. 
He accepts us because Jesus did and we can bring our brokenness and our sin and we can allow the spirit to search us and know us. And so if you didn't have a chance when you came in, if you wanna take a moment and grab the elements, they're up front, they're also in the back and as we receive those elements, we wanna spend some time in reflection. Asking the Lord to search us and know us to, in some ways to recommit our heart to him and to devote ourselves to following. So let's grab those elements and take some time just simply to search our hearts, to seek out the Lord, and then we'll share communion together. Father, I thank you that you resist the proud and so you resist pride in us. But you love to pour out your grace on the humble, on those that acknowledge their need. Father, those that are willing in the, the light of your goodness to say, Father, here's, here's where I'm rebelling against you. I, I know it, I see it. Father, you see it, and I just want to acknowledge it in your presence. And Father, for some here, maybe it's just a struggle of faith, a struggle to trust. And I pray in Jesus' name, Father, that they lay that struggle before you and just acknowledge, Father, I'm having a hard time trusting you. It could be the pain of the past, the hurt, the uncertainty of the future. Father, we lay our burdens down before you. And I pray for anyone here today that has never accepted the good news of the gospel and say, Father, accept me through Jesus and Jesus alone. I know I need a savior. I know I'm a sinner that has wandered away from you. I haven't pursued you, known you, loved you. I've wanted to do life my way. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, you bring me forgiveness, a new identity, restoration, a new life. And so Holy Spirit, would you show us what we need? And would you speak to our hearts? On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. He broke it, he gave thanks, and he said, take and eat, for this is my body, which is broken for you. Let us receive it in remembrance of him. And in the same way, after supper, he took a cup. And he said, this cup, it represents the new covenant that is now established in my blood. Let us receive it together. 